to Jesus, and we actually shared bread and wine together um, as part of our meeting. This week, we're looking at the cross. What we also did was we split the preach up and gave it to multiple preachers. So there were two preachers last week who each had short sections to discuss the text, talk about the painting, and then we responded in worship at the end. And last week, it was myself and Rob Armstrong did that. You can catch up with that online if you've missed that. This week, we're doing the same again. So we've got a different bit of Bible text, a different image, and we've got two new preachers coming to you. So we've got Becky Douglas-Jones and Aaron Abraham, and they've got 15 minutes each to talk about um, the text and the painting, and then out of that, we will respond and worship together. So without further ado, Becky, can you come up here? Can we welcome Becky, please? She's doing our first one. just going to move to the side because then hopefully you can see the screen and the picture. If you know me, you'll know that this is not the place I enjoy being up front in front of everybody and speaking. Um, But at the beginning of the year, I felt God challenged me to stop saying, no, I can't to everything and to start saying yes. So I said yes and then regretted it slightly afterwards. But here I am and I can't run away. So, as you heard, my name is Becky, I'm married to Jeremy, and I've got three kids. I've got Joel, who's somewhere at the back, he's 16, Caitlin, who's 15, and Isaac, who is 8, and I'm part of the leadership team here. So, Jeremy and I have lived, and the kids, in England for the past about 11 years. We felt God ask us to move here. Um, We didn't know to what exactly but we packed up everything and we came. We moved first to Falmouth and were there for two years and then we moved to Birmingham. So we've been here for about nine years. We were much younger then and excited to do anything that God was asking us. Um, When Jeremy and I got married, we said to God that we would do and go anywhere he told us. And so we are here. We've had some amazing times and had the opportunity of building relationships with people that I will always count as an absolute blessing and which has made our lives so much richer. We've also had some really hard times, times where I've questioned whether we heard God right, but we are still here. We've now been part of Real Life Church for about five years, I think, and um, it's been amazing. We've been welcomed, we've been included, and we've been made to feel part of the family. Enough talking about me. This morning I get to speak about two men. One is gifted, and the other one is great. The first man I'm going to speak about is Salvador Dali. And if you could put his painting up. This is his painting. It's called um, Christ of St. John of the Cross. So this painting, Christ of St. John of the Cross, was painted by Salvador in 1951 at a time when he was coming out of a strong atheism of his youth and was re-embracing his Catholic faith. The painting was partly inspired by a drawing that Dolly was shown by the 16th century Spanish Carmelite mystic, um, St. John of the Cross, and hence then the title of his painting. It shows Jesus Christ, if you look at it, on the cross in a darkened sky over a body of water with a boat and a fisherman, which was actually taken from the contemporary setting of the Spanish um, fishing village of Port Legat. I'm not quite sure how to say that. And that was where Dali was living. 
He has us view Christ and the cross direct from above and looking down on the clouds below and then the earth below that. But actually the painting has two perspectives. So looking down from above, but also if you look from the bottom of the painting, you look straight into it. I'm not very paint or art critic, but for me it looks like two separate paintings. So as you can probably guess from the painting, that Aaron and I will be speaking about the cross this morning. We've been given the text from Mark 15, verse 22 to 26. If you'd like to open your Bibles and read with me, otherwise, it, it, there it is. You can read, follow on the screen. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Each time I read those verses, verse 23 stood out to me. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I kept wondering why he refused the wine. So looking up, it says that according to an old tradition, respected women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink to those condemned to death in order to decrease their sensitivity to the excruciating pain. I'm almost sure that Jesus was probably really thirsty and in a lot of pain. And a bit of wine would have been so welcome. I know for many of us in that situation, we probably would have said yes. But Jesus said no. If we go back a bit, right from the beginning of his ministry, Jesus knew his hour would come when he was to die. It shaped everything he did, and there are many times in the New Testament where he alludes to it. In John 2, when the wine ran out at the wedding and his mother came and asked him to help, he said that his hour had not yet come. In John 7, Jesus wouldn't go to the Feast of the Tabernacles as the Jewish leaders there were looking for ways to kill him. And he said that his time had not fully come. And then again in John 8 verse 20, Jesus was teaching in the temple courts and no one seized him. And he said it was because his time had not yet come. He knew his hour when he was to die was coming but that it was not yet here. And then it was Passover week. If you would open, actually I hadn't thought of how I'm going to open and read the Bible and have a microphone, but if you open your Bible with me to John 12, verse 23. In John 12, 23 it says, and, and this is where Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover week, and he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it does, it produces many seeds. And then in verse 27, it says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus knew that his hour had come. A few days later, after Jesus had finished praying with his disciples in the upper room, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said, 
my soul, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He went further and he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, this hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It says in Luke that an angel from heaven appeared to strengthen him, and still being in anguish, he prayed so earnestly that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Quite an image. If we go back again to Genesis, we see that Adam in another garden was tempted. And it seems that he quite easily gave into the temptation and chose to not to obey God, but to do what he thought was good for him and was best for him. But in this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus too had a choice to make. He knew all along that his hour was, would come. He knew why he had come as a man. But it was in the garden that he had to decide to either protect and save himself what was to come or to embrace his father's perfect and painful will. I think we often forget that Jesus was fully man. When we think of the cross, it's often in the context of what the cross does for me. What I receive from Jesus dying on the cross, that my sins are forgiven, I get eternal life, I'm reconciled to God, and those are all so important. But how often do we think about what it cost Jesus? what he must have gone through to die on the cross for us. If you just take a moment and place yourself in the garden where Jesus was and just think about what he must have been going through or experiencing. For me, this is one of the most amazing parts of the Bible. It shows Jesus as fully human. He's battling. What he's being asked to do is huge and will cost him so much. He was fully aware of the cost, and so it was in this garden that Jesus had to make the final choice to subject himself to embracing the pain and not just enduring it. He must choose the nails and the darkness and the separation from his father and to receive the full wrath of his father with no compromises and no shortcuts. Jesus had to choose to go willingly and freely, and he chose to say, not my will, but yours be done. In Philippians 2 verse 8, it says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' suffering is a beautiful act of submission and obedience to the will of the Father. In Ephesians 5 verse 2, it says, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Isn't that beautiful? If you put the painting... Thank you. (laughs) When we look again at the painting, you'll see that although it is a depiction of the crucifixion, it's devoid of nails, a crown, or blood. And according to Dali, he was convinced in a dream that these features would mar his depiction of Christ. So that may have been his point of view. But for me, when I look at the picture, I see that Jesus didn't need anything to hold him to the cross. He'd already chosen in the garden to obey his Father. In this picture, we see Jesus looking down at creation, at us, his people, and he chose to die for us because that was the only way God's wrath at our sin could be absorbed and he could redeem a people 
for himself, but primarily Jesus chose to do this to bring glory and honor to his Father. I've so been challenged, actually I really enjoy doing this, but I've been challenged as I've spent the past few weeks looking at Jesus in the garden. I've been challenged to look at the choices that I make and whether they have been in obedience or submission to God or have been for my own convenience and ease. How often have I chosen to take the wine being offered rather than choosing to endure or accept what God has placed before me? I also love seeing Jesus' attitude. I know for certain if it was me and I was in that garden, I would have been moaning and arguing and sulking. I may have eventually chosen to say yes and to obey, but not with a good attitude. I can actually see myself probably on the cross going, you know, just making sure everyone knew what I was actually doing and what I was giving up. And I wouldn't have, well, I wouldn't have been like Jesus. But Jesus was sorrowful. He was distressed. He was honest about how he felt. But in all of this, he honored his father. For some of us today, hearing about Jesus has made you want to know more about him. You are asking questions. Why someone would willingly do what he did? Please don't run away from these questions. Find out. Stuart and Melanie are running another Explore course soon where you are able to ask many questions about our church and what we believe. We'll do an Alpha course where they share more about who Jesus was. Or you could start reading about Jesus in the New Testament. Or ask someone here today, but please keep asking and don't stop. I promise you that it will be worth it. And if you do follow Jesus, what choices do you make? Jesus knew why he was here. He referred to it often. Do we know our purpose? According to John Piper, our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And our mission is to make disciples. Does this shape our lives? Maybe this week in Life Group, you could discuss this with each other and ask these questions. Do I know my purpose and does this purpose shape my life? Or are there times when I have compromised on what God has asked me to do and taken the easier option? And do I need to repent and ask God to help me choose him and his way? And lastly, do I have an attitude of honoring God in everything that I do? Can we truly say, like Jesus, that we will follow him no matter the cost or the consequences and say, not my will, but yours be done? Can everyone hear me? Yeah, okay. Yes. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, that's great. Just give me a moment. Sort of the technology. Right, I'm Aaron, married to Gigi. We have two children, years six and seven. Um, I'm a software architect by day, and I lead the technical team here at church. I thought there's one more thing you need to know about me. And um, so if, if in this world you have you know, left brain creative type, sorry, right brain, creative types, and the left brain are the, you know, ad- analytic, pedantic types, that's me. Okay? I'm, I'm very left brain. There's a friend of mine very delicately put it, after seeing uh, a disaster of my making, um, that art may not really be my forte, okay? 
It's, it's not that I don't like a nice melody or painting or something. I love the songs we sing at here at church, okay? Uh, but if, if you get any more esoteric than that, I'm going to zone out really, really fast. So if you could put the next slide on, please. So naturally, I'm going to talk to you about the surrealist painting, The Christ of St. John on the Cross uh, by Salvador Dali. Um, so just to put that in perspective, that's sort of like my 11-year-old son going to talk to you about pink fluffy unicorns. So it's going to be a rough ride. Please hang on and advance apologies, okay? Um, but let's, let's ground ourselves in the biblical text first. So this is, this is the same text that uh, Becky brought, but, but let's go through it again. It's important. So they brought him to the place called Golgotha. It's a place of the skull. Uh, a skull. Offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. So the first point that I'd like to highlight there is, is uh, exactly what Becky talked about, the wine mixed with myrrh. And I, th- I thought that was interesting as well, that you know, it, it, was a, it was an act of mercy to a convict. Um, I thought I'd mention this. See, I've taken up running, inspired by the so many running people in this church, and I've quickly found it's really difficult. <laughs> but... But if you put a pair of headphones, if I put on a pair of headphones, I'm just listening to music and running, it takes my mind off the exhaustion, the pain, the animal desire to just lie down and die in peace. (laughs) It's it's an escape for me, okay? Don't judge anyone else. But um, in some versions, it says Jesus would not, as Becky said, he refused. He refused it. Jesus knew the pain and suffering he was going to endure. The cross was probably a common thing in that day. and he, he refused that. He, he, there were no escapes, no shortcuts. And the second thing that um, I thought was interesting was that they divided his garments among them. Now, um, John, who, who wrote another uh, gospel, was standing, we think, in closer proximity to the cross. And what, we, uh, what John says is that they cast lots for his inner seamless tunic. Now, just visualize that. that that's kind of the undergarments, okay, the inner garments. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and they're gambling for his inner garments. So just to emphasize that Jesus really was shorn of all dignity in this process. Okay. Now, let's come back to the painting. Um, so I, I had a look at, you know, what, does, what has Dali done? What's, what's life all about? And there are a few paintings, that, uh, other works that came. Did you know that he, d- he actually did this, the Chupa Chups logo? And there's uh, another one, which is the Maywest sofa. That's a sofa. You can sit on it, okay? And Persistence of Memory, that's a famous one. And finally, a lobster telephone. Apparently it worked. Uh, or whether it works or not, I don't know. But why not, right? Now, you can, you can see the Christian theme running through all of that. It's, now, um, I, was, I was looking at what Dali had done, and like Becky, I was trying to understand what was it that gave him that moment of inspiration, that, that something that enlightened him to say, I want to paint Jesus on the cross. Um, and I wasn't able to get that much. In fact, I'd say that his, his, um, his moral, his spiritual life did not give me that exemplary set of circumstances where I'd say, yeah, wow, let's paint Jesus on the cross. And if you look at the painting itself, um, thanks, Rob. As Becky pointed out, Dali 
deliberately uh, did not put some features here. This is a person who's been scourged to within an inch of his life, and there is no evidence. There is no crown of thorns. Regardless of where you think the nails actually went in, there are no nails. Jesus was seemingly attached to a superglue. Now, for me, that's, that's not a nice thing. I like authenticity. I like traceability. I like, I like things to sum up nicely. But, but again, this is not his focus. See, Dali wanted to accentuate surrealism, uh, the triangle, the circle, all those things. Um, it wasn't about spiritual depth. It wasn't about historical accuracy. So you can see that Dali and I are not going to agree on this, and he's dead anyway, so that's, that's besides the point. So I'm kind of stuck here, but I thought, let me, let me investigate crucifixes in, you know, in a Christian context and understand where did this come from? What's it all about? And um, so it may not surprise you that the crucifix as a Christian thing did not actually come about till about 300 or 400 years after Christ. You can do the math on that, and it works, um, with one notable exception. What we think was the uh, first ever use of a crucifix and as a Christian symbol uh, was uncovered as part of an archaeological thing in Rome, in ancient Rome, in, uh, on the Palatine Hill, if I've got that right. Now, it's not what you think. So before we put that slide up, I just want to warn you, it's, it's really not what you'd think. And for most of us, it might even be quite offensive. So it's a crucified donkey. Now, the donkey in that day and age was not the soft-eyed, gentle animal at a petting zoo. This was intentional as a scornful epithet. There's a cultural and historical context there, but let's draw our eyes away from that to the figure of a man next to it. Um, Roman soldier, servant, we don't know. But the words there are really important. It says, Alexamenos worships God. Now, there should be two things that popped into your mind when I said that, and I'll I'll, I'll go through that. I think they're good deductions. The first thing is, Alexamenos was probably a Christian. Um, No other people group in that day and age would have venerated a crucified convict. The second thing that that also should come up is, he was probably being ridiculed. Um, The cross for the first century, second century, would have meant a uh, public humiliation, would have meant scorn, would have been a very ignominious end. I found that interesting, but um, I don't know anything about Alexamenos. We don't know, okay, beyond uh, conjecture, what we can think. But let me tell you something about myself. I thought this would be helpful. Um, so I've struggled a, lit, a little bit with some things about Christianity and some even after I became a Christian. So the first one was, how do I be a Christian and still be relatively cool at the same time? Right? The cross, Christianity did not have that oomph for me. The cross did not immediately evoke a sense of style or power. You know, in my peer pressure group, I'll be honest, it was kind of weak as a value proposition. And, and then I struggled with the logic as well. How, where in the Bible do you find that set of statements that say, this is what evangelists, 
you know, the, 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 about what evangelists say you're supposed to do with such spectacular life-changing consequences. Um, but more importantly, how does that equation work beyond the purely superficial? Right? Where's the logic there? Now, I think, I suspect that people down the ages, contemporary as well as in Rome, would have struggled with things at the emotional as well as the intellectual. And regardless of how Alexamenos, whoever he was, uh, regardless of how he took it, uh, he was living in a place where Christianity was fresh, unaccepted. It was a very strange religion. And he would have probably faced these taunts and jibes uh, firsthand, in your face, if he ever wanted to see the, the degrading finality of the cross. It was right there. Now, it's into this raw and inhospitable culture of Rome that uh, Paul wrote a letter. Now, we don't know who, wrote, who read this letter, who were the first-hand readers of the letter. Uh, we get it second-hand. But let's assume for the sake of the narrative that Alexamenos was one of them, okay. or someone like Alexamenos. And these are Paul's opening sentences. I am not ashamed of the gospel. At this point, you want to take back, step back and say, wait, Paul, that does not look like a great selling proposition either. Could you, you know, elaborate? What do you mean by that? And he says, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And again, maybe the skeptic or the, you know, the, the afflicted among you would say, wait, this Jesus is, has been killed on the cross. He's dead. Now, where is the power there, with all due respect? And then he says, because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. That is God's way of justifying sinners. Now, clearly, Paul is not seeing the cross in the same way as the graffiti artist, but there's more, okay? Well, if you go to the next slide... Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about Paul here. He's got really strong oratorical skills. He's an influential person for whatever we understand of, of New Testament times. But listen to what he says to the church in Corinth. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ <laughs> and him crucified. Okay, let's make that clear. My message, my preaching, not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, Paul's not pulling any punches here. He's making it very clear what he thinks. And let's take a step back and try to understand that. Paul is not seeing the cross as a... Um, Paul sees the cross as a solution. Now, he sees the value of the solution because he knows the depth of the problem. And he knows this problem really well because he's been fighting it all his life. Now, this is the way I'm reading this. Okay? If you think about every evil in the world around us today, um, inequality, prejudice, war, global warming, sickness, you, you can, if you really think about this, you can trace it down eventually to something that is rooted in each one of us. And that's what we call, Christians call sin. It's missing the mark. 
And, I, I, and, and the reason why it has such phenomenal ramifications is uh, because it kicks out of kilter that spiritual framework that undergirds our environment. Okay. Now, the only solution for this is that we're sort of transformed, every one of us, to have the, the, the pure goodness of God in us. And that is impossible. But what Paul is saying here, and what the Bible says, is because of the power of the cross, that's real. It's here, and it is happening. Now, if you, if you go back and go to the next slide, again, Paul talks about uh, the church in Corinth. And, and, well, he's writing the church in Corinth. And he says, look, Jews are demanding signs. They're, they're, they're looking at miracles. Um, Greeks, that is non-Jews, pursue worldly wisdom, philosophy. We're preaching a message that is to Jews a stumbling block. It's just, it's just madness for them. And to Greeks, it's just utter nonsense. But to us, Christ, Christ is the power of God. To us, Christ is the wisdom of God. Paul is just seeing things with the bigger picture. He's just got that vision. He's seeing the cross not as a social embarrassment. He's not seeing the cross as a logical tangle. No. What he sees is the cross is the power of God. Now, it's beyond any human power, any power that we know of, but it's a power that is able to speak to our existential need for cleansing from within. The cross is the wisdom of God. It is beyond any human wisdom. But critically, the cross is able to answer our intellectual thirst. It's it's able to fulfill or satisfy our intellectual thirst. The cross brings us to this insane place, this mad place where we are able to have a deep and meaningful relationship with the God who created us with the God who loves us. Now, let's get back to Alexa Menos for a moment. Um, I don't know much about graffiti, and sometimes I admire graffiti from the train windows, sometimes I don't. Uh, I don't know who does these things. Um, I'm pretty sure we don't know who Banksy is. So there's no way we know who's done this piece of graffiti in Rome. But it's interesting that they found another piece in the adjoining chamber, uh, a different hand, same time period. And it says, Alexamenos Fidelis. In in Latin, it's Alexamenos is faithful, or Alexamenos the faithful. I like a happy story, just like most of us. I've got two children, come on. Um, And I'd like to think that this unknown person uh, did the right thing. I'd like to think that he had his convictions, he knew what he believed, and he lived it through. And I I think, I'd like to think that um, he did the right thing, regardless of what it meant for him or for his family. So let's look at ourselves for a moment. Now, I've got, a, I've got a few challenge questions here that I'm just going to run through. And it's not to you, it's for me as well. 
Um, maybe if the band comes up and sets things up for a moment. So the first question I'd, I'd like to ask is, what's your angle on Christ? Now, if you don't know Jesus yet, and um, if, if, you, if you're not considering yourself as a Christian, if uh, you're not in that deep relationship with Christ, I'm not being rhetorical, but what holds you back? Um, ha- ask yourself the question, see if the facts really stack up right, and as Becky invited you earlier, if you feel like doing something, do something about it. Uh, seek out an alpha course. Talk to the leaders here. Okay? But to those of us who are Christian, who are in a life with Jesus, can I just challenge us? Are we hiding emotionally or intellectually from all that the cross says? Um, I'd ask you, is embarrassment or the thought of public scrutiny forcing us us to sticky tape aspects of Christianity on instead, making us look good on the outside? Are are we really deep inside? Or put it another way, are we just not digging deep enough into Jesus, into his word, maybe because we may think it's too shallow, it can't handle that kind of sustained attack? What is your angle on Jesus? The second question, do you know what Jesus actually asks of you? Um, Is there an area in your life where you think Jesus is seeking to get into, uh, where he actually owns mastery of, and uh, perhaps we are unknowingly or unconsciously holding away from him? You know, I, I look at BibleGateway.com quite often, and there's a little strip, an ad strip there that you know, throws up this thing about Bible Gateway Plus is coming and so on. Last week, it asked me this really strange question. Do you know who Christ is calling you to become? Wow. Uh, do you know? Do, do you know? <laughs> is there something that you're doing or that you're not doing that is preventing you from being that something awesome for God. Do you know what Jesus actually asks of you? And the third question, so what's your response? What's your, what are you going to do about this? Becky's already made an invite, and I'm just going to add to that. How are you going to respond, and to just to put that in perspective, how will you respond to him, to the God who made no compromises, no shortcuts, to Jesus who left every shred of dignity behind when he pursued your salvation? Now, the Christians of the first century are dead. They are long gone. They're buried, wherever. Their time is over and uh, we'll meet them in heaven. But the spotlight is now on us. Are we being faithful in what we've been committed to? What is your response to Jesus? What is our response? Can we just stand? Stand in the presence of God. So the band's going to lead us in worship in a moment.
But I just want to, I just want to lead us in. I just want to pray. If you feel comfortable, just raise your hands and raise your hands as a, as a, as a token, as an initial token of submission to God. Let's come in His presence. Father, we worship you. You are God. You're God of history, and you're as undeniable then as you are now. And we lift you up. Glory is due to your name and no other. And we want to thank you, God, for what you've done on the cross. We want to thank you for who you are to us. We thank you, Lord, for the little ways in which you are 